Okay, good evening. Uh, tonight I'd like to continue on uh, reading another uh, sutta and then sharing some more of the teachings uh, from the collected teachings of Lumpur Sumedho. And the uh, sutta that I would like to share this evening is, uh, yeah, just r- really quite a wonderful, uh, wonderful teaching from the Buddha and uh, particularly on the theme of yeah, coming back to the basics of the Buddha's teaching, the, the topic of uh, sensuality and the, the drawbacks of sensuality is very much a really fundamental part of the Buddhist teaching. And I feel like one of the best, uh, one of the best suttas that really yeah, describes the drawbacks of sensuality in a very, uh, very graphic way uh, is this teaching that was given to uh, Magandhya. So this is the uh, Magandhya Sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya number 75. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasadama on a spread of grass in the fire chamber of a Brahmin belonging to the Bardwaja clan. Then when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Kamasadama for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Kamasadama and had returned from his alms round, after his meal, he went to a certain grove for the day's abiding. Having entered the grove, he sat down at the root of a tree for the day's abiding. Then the wanderer Magandhya, while walking and wandering for exercise, went to the fire chamber of the Brahmin belonging to the Bardwaja clan. There he saw a spread of grass prepared and asked the Brahmin, For whom has this spread of grass been prepared in Master Bardwaja's fire chamber? It seems like it might be a recluse's bed. Master Magandhya, there is the recluse Gotama, the son of the Sakyans, who went forth from a Sakyan clan. Now a good report of Master Gotama has been spread to this effect. That blessed one is accomplished, fully enlightened, perfect in true knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of worlds, incomparable leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened, blessed. This bed has been prepared for that Master Gotama. Indeed, Master Bardwaja, it is an ill sight we see when we see the bed of that destroyer of growth, Master Gotama. Be careful what you say, Magandhya, be careful what you say. Many learned nobles, learned Brahmins, learned householders, and learned recluses have full confidence in Master Gotama and have been disciplined by him in the noble true way in the Dhamma that is wholesome. Master Bardwaja, even if we saw that Master Gotama face to face, we would tell him to his face, the recluse Gotama is a destroyer of growth. Why is that? Because that has come down in our discourse. If Master Magandhya has no objection, may I tell this to Master Gotama? Let Master Bardwaja be at ease. Tell him just what I have said. Meanwhile, with the divine ear, which is purified and surpasses the human, the Blessed One heard this conversation between the Brahman of the Bardwaja clan and the Wander Magandhya. 
Then when it was evening, the Blessed One rose from meditation, went to the Brahmin's fire chamber, and sat down on the spread of grass made ready. Then the Brahmin of the Bardwaja clan went to the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side. The Blessed One asked him, Bardwaja, did you have any conversation with the wander Magandya about this very same spread of grass? When this was said, the Brahmin, awestruck and with his hair standing on end, replied, We wanted to tell Master Gautama about that very thing, but Master Gautama has anticipated us. But this discussion between the Blessed One and the Brahmin of the Bardwaja clan was left unfinished, for then the wander Magandya, while walking and wandering for exercise, came to the Brahmin's fire chamber and went up to the Blessed One. He exchanged greetings with the Blessed One, and when this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side. The Blessed One said to him, Magandiya, the eye delights in forms, takes delight in forms, rejoices in forms. That has been tamed by the Tathagata, guarded, protected, and restrained, and he teaches the Dhamma for its restraint. Was it with reference to this that you said the recluse Gotama is a destroyer of growth? It was with reference to this, Master Gotama, that I said the recluse Gotama is a destroyer of growth. Why is that? Because that is recorded in our scriptures. The ear delights in sounds, the nose delights in odors, the tongue delights in flavors, the body delights in tangibles, the mind delights in mind objects, takes delight in mind objects, rejoices in mind objects. That has been tamed by the Tathagata, guarded, protected, and restrained, and he teaches the Dhamma for its restraint. Was it with reference to this that you said the recluse Gotama is a destroyer of growth? It was with reference to this, Master Gotama, that I said the recluse Gotama is a destroyer of growth. Why is that? Because that is recorded in our scriptures. What do you think, Magandya? Here someone may have formerly enjoyed himself with forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. On a later occasion, having understood as they actually are the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of forms, he might abandon craving for forms, remove fever for forms, and abide without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. What would you say to him, Magandya? Nothing, Master Gotama. What do you think, Magandya? Here someone may have formerly enjoyed himself with sounds cognizable by the ear, with odors cognizable by the nose, with flavors cognizable by the tongue, with tangibles cognizable by the body, that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. On a later occasion, having understood as they actually are the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of tangibles, he might abandon craving for tangibles, remove fever for tangibles, and abide without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. What would you say to him, Magandya? Nothing, Master Gotama. Magandya, formerly when I lived the home life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure, 
with forms cognizable by the eye, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, with tangibles cognizable by the body, that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. I had three palaces, one for the rainy season, one for the winter, and one for the summer. I lived in the rain's palace for the four months of the rainy season, enjoying myself with musicians, none of whom were men, and I did not go down to the lower palace. On a later occasion, having understood as they actually are, the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of sensual pleasures, I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures. I removed fever for sensual pleasures, and I abide without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. I see other beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, being devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, burning with fever for sensual pleasures, indulging in sensual pleasures, and I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is, Magandhya, a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. Suppose Magandhya householder or a householder's son was rich with great wealth and property, and being provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure, he might enjoy himself with forms cognizable by the eye, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body, that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. Having conducted himself well in body, speech, and mind, on the dissolution of the body after death, he might reappear in a happy destination, in the heavenly world, in the retinue of the gods of the thirty-three. And there, surrounded by a group of nymphs in the Nandana grove, he would enjoy himself, provided and endowed with the five cords of divine sensual pleasure. Suppose he saw a householder or a householder's son enjoying himself, provided and endowed with the five cords of human sensual pleasure. What do you think, Magandhya, would that young god, surrounded by the group of nymphs in the Nandana grove, enjoying himself, provided and endowed with the five cords of divine sensual pleasure, envy the householder or the householder's son for the five cords of human sensual pleasure, or would he be enticed by human sensual pleasures? No, Master Gautama. Why not? Because divine sensual pleasures are more excellent and sublime than human sensual pleasures. So too, Magandhya, formerly when I lived the home life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure. On a later occasion, having understood as they actually are the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of sensual pleasures, I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures, I removed fever for sensual pleasures, and I abide without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. I see other beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, being devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, burning with fever for sensual pleasures, 
indulging in sensual pleasures, and I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is, Magandhya, a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. Suppose, Magandhya, there was a leper, with sores and blisters on his limbs, being devoured by worms, scratching the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails, cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. Then his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, would bring a physician to treat him. The physician would make medicine for him, and by means of that medicine the man would be cured of his leprosy and would become well and happy, independent, master of himself, able to go where he likes. Then he might see another leper with sores and blisters on his limbs, being devoured by worms, scratching the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails, cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. What do you think, Magandhya? Would that man envy that leper for his burning charcoal pit or his use of medicine? No, Master Gotama. Why is that? Because when there is sickness, there is need for medicine. And when there is no sickness, there is no need for medicine. Suppose, Magandhya, there was a leper with sores and blisters on his limbs, being devoured by worms, scratching the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails, cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. Then his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, brought a physician to treat him. The physician would make medicine for him, and by means of that medicine the man would be cured of his leprosy and would become well and happy, independent, master of himself, able to go where he likes. Then two strong men would seize him by both arms and drag him towards a burning charcoal pit. What do you think, Magandhya? Would that man twist his body this way and that? Yes, Master Gotama. Why is that? Because that fire is indeed painful to touch, hot and scorching. What do you think, Magandhya? Is it only now that that fire is painful to touch, hot and scorching? Or previously, too, was that fire painful to touch, hot and scorching? Master Gotama, that fire is now painful to touch, hot and scorching. And previously, too, that fire was painful to touch, hot and scorching. For when that man was a leper with sores and blisters on his limbs, being devoured by worms, scratching the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails, his faculties were impaired. Thus, though the fire was actually painful to touch, he acquired a mistaken perception of it as pleasant. So too, Magandhya, in the past, sensual pleasures were painful to touch, hot and scorching. In the future, sensual pleasures will be painful to touch, hot and scorching. And now at present, sensual pleasures are painful to touch, hot and scorching. But these beings who are not freed from lust for sensual pleasures, who are devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, who burn with fever for sensual pleasures, have faculties that are impaired. Thus, though sensual pleasures are actually painful to touch, they acquire a mistaken perception of them as pleasant. Suppose, Magandhya, there was a leper with sores and blisters on his limbs, being devoured by worms, scratching the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails, cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. 
The more he scratches the scabs and cauterizes his body, the fouler, more evil-smelling, and more infected the openings of his wounds would become. Yet he would find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment in scratching the openings of his wounds. So too, Magandhya, beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, who are devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, who burn with fever for sensual pleasures, still indulge in sensual pleasures, the more such beings indulge in sensual pleasures, the more their craving for sensual pleasures increases, and the more they are burned by their fever for sensual pleasures. Yet they find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment in dependence on the five chords of sensual pleasure. What do you think, Magandhya? Have you ever seen or heard of a king or a king's minister enjoying himself provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure, who, without abandoning craving for sensual pleasures, without removing fever for sensual pleasures, was able to abide free from thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace, who is able or who will be able to so abide? No, Master Gotama. Good, Magandhya, I too have never seen or heard of a king or a king's minister, enjoying himself provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure, who, without abandoning craving for sensual pleasures, without removing fever for sensual pleasures, was able to abide free from thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace, or who is able or who will be able to so abide. On the contrary, Magandhya, those recluses or Brahmins who abided or abide or will abide free from thirst with a mind inwardly at peace, all do so after having understood as they actually are the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of sensual pleasures. And it is after abandoning craving for sensual pleasures and removing fever for sensual pleasures that they abided or abide or will abide free from thirst with a mind inwardly at peace. Then at that point the Blessed One uttered this exclamation, The greatest of all gains is health. Nibbana is the greatest bliss. The Eightfold Path is the best of paths, for it leads safely to the deathless. When this was said, the wonder Magandhya said to the Blessed One, It is wonderful, Master Gotama, it is marvelous, how well that has been expressed by Master Gotama. The greatest of all gains is health. Nibbana is the greatest bliss. We too have heard earlier wanderers who were teachers and teachers of teachers saying this, and it agrees, Master Gotama. But, Magandhya, when you heard earlier wanderers who were teachers and teachers of teachers saying this, what is that health? What is that Nibbana? When this was said, the wanderer Magandhya rubbed his own limbs with his hands and said, this is that health, Master Gotama. This is that Nibbana for I am now healthy and happy, and nothing afflicts me. Magandhya supposed there was a man born blind who could not see dark and light forms, who could not see blue, yellow, red, or pink forms, who could not see what was even and uneven, who could not see the stars or the sun and moon. He might hear a man with good eyesight saying, Good indeed, sirs, is a white cloth, beautiful, spotless, and clean and he would go in search of a white cloth. 
Then a man would cheat him with a dirty, soiled garment thus. Good man, here is a white cloth for you, beautiful, spotless, and clean. And he would accept it and put it on. And being satisfied with it, he would utter words of satisfaction thus. Good indeed, sirs, is a white cloth, beautiful, spotless, and clean. What do you think, Magandia? When that man born blind accepted that dirty, soiled garment, put it on, and being satisfied with it, uttered words of satisfaction thus, Good indeed, sirs, is a white cloth, beautiful, spotless, and clean. Did he do so knowing and seeing, or out of faith in the man with good eyesight? Venerable sir, he would have done so unknowing and unseen, out of faith in the man with good eyesight. So too, Magandia, the wanderers of other sects are blind and visionless. They do not know health, they do not see Nibbana. Yet they utter this stanza thus, The greatest of all gains is health, Nibbana is the greatest bliss. This stanza was uttered by the earlier accomplished ones, fully enlightened ones, thus, The greatest of all gains is health, Nibbana is the greatest bliss. The Eightfold Path is the best of paths, for it leads safely to the deathless. Now it has gradually become current among ordinary people. And although this body, Magandia, is a disease, a tumor, a dart, a calamity, and an affliction, referring to this body, you say, this is that health, Master Gotama, this is that Nibbana. You do not have that noble vision, Magandia, by means of which you might know health and see Nibbana. I have confidence in Master Gotama thus. Master Gotama is capable of teaching me the Dhamma in such a way that I can come to know health and to see Nibbana. Magandiya, suppose there was a man born blind who could not see dark and light forms or the sun and the moon. Then his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives would bring a physician to treat him. The physician would make a medicine for him. Yet by means of that medicine, the man's vision would not arise or be purified. What do you think, Magandia? Would that doctor reap weariness and disappointment? Yes, Master Gotama. So too, Magandia, if I were to teach you the Dhamma thus, this is that health, this is that Nibbana, you might not know health or see Nibbana, and that would be wearisome and troublesome for me. I have confidence in Master Gotama thus. Master Gotama is capable of teaching me the Dhamma, in such a way that I can come to know health and to see Nibbana. Magandiya, suppose there was a man born blind who could not see dark and light forms or the sun and the moon. He might hear a man with good eyesight saying, Good indeed, sirs, is a white cloth, beautiful, spotless, and clean. And he would go in search of a white cloth. Then a man would cheat him with a dirty, soiled garment thus, Good man, here is a white cloth for you, beautiful, spotless, and clean. And he would accept it and put it on. Then his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, would bring a physician to treat him. The physician would make medicine, emetics and purgatives, ointments and counter-ointments, and nasal treatment. And by means of that medicine, the man's vision would arise and be purified. Together with the arising of his vision, his desire and liking for that dirty, soiled garment would be abandoned. Then he might burn with indignation and enmity towards that man and might think that he ought to be killed thus. Indeed, I have long been tricked. 
cheated and defrauded by this man with his dirty, soiled garment when he told me, Good man, here is a white cloth for you, beautiful, spotless, and clean. So too, Magandya, if I were to teach you the Dhamma thus, this is that health, this is that Nibbana, you might know health and see Nibbana. Together with the arising of your vision, your desire and lust for the five aggregates affected by clinging might be abandoned. Then perhaps you might think, Indeed, I have long been tricked, cheated and defrauded by this mind. For when clinging, I have been clinging just to material form. I have been clinging just to feeling. I have been clinging just to perception. I have been clinging just to formations. I have been clinging just to consciousness. With my clinging as condition, being comes to be. With being as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. I have confidence in Master Gotama thus. Master Gotama is capable of teaching me the Dhamma in such a way that I might rise up from this seat cured of my blindness. Then Magandhya, associate with true men. When you associate with true men, you will hear the true Dhamma. When you hear the true Dhamma, you will practice in accordance with the true Dhamma. When you practice in accordance with the true Dhamma, you will know and see for yourself thus. These are diseases, tumors, and darts. But here these diseases, tumors, and darts cease without remainder. With the cessation of my clinging comes cessation of being. With the cessation of being, cessation of birth. With the cessation of birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. When this was said, the wanderer Magandhya said, Magnificent Master Gotama, magnificent Master Gotama. Master Gotama has made the Dhamma clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gotama for refuge and to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of Bhikkhus. I would receive the going forth under Master Gotama. I would receive the full admission. Magandhya, one who formerly belonged to another sect and desires the going forth and the full admission in this Dhamma and discipline, lives on probation for four months. At the end of four months, if the bhikkhus are satisfied with him, they give him the going forth and the full admission to the bhikkhu state. But I recognize individual differences in this matter. Venerable Sir, if those who formerly belong to another sect and desire the going forth and the full admission in this dhamma and discipline live on probation for four months, and if at the end of four months the bhikkhus being satisfied with them give them the going forth and the full admission to the bhikkhu state, then I will live on probation for four years. At the end of the four years, if the bhikkhus are satisfied with me, let them give me the going forth and the full admission to the bhikkhus state. Then the wanderer Magandhya received the going forth under the Blessed One, and he received the full admission. And soon, not long after his full admission, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent, and resolute, the Venerable Magandhya, by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, here and now, 
entered upon and abided in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. He directly knew, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being, and the Venerable Magandhya became one of the Arhants. So are there any comments or questions that people have for senior monks? I just think that's a brilliant exposition just because uh, it's like, uh, you just think of in a realistic way, the wanderer Magandhya, it, it starts out with him saying, this is an ill omen, this is, this is awful that you have set out this bed for this wanderer recluse Gotama, and then the Buddha hears that with his divine ear, and I was thinking for myself, wow, you know, how would I react to that? I'd be like, no way would I want to teach this person, no way would I want to answer their questions, but the Buddha has compassion even for somebody who at first is critical of him, and then turns him around in this quite, quite a brilliant way that only the Buddha can do. It's, a, it's quite... A, yeah, I found this quite quite an amazing sutta. All right, so if there are no more uh, comments, then uh, we can uh, do a little bit of reading from the teachings of Lampal Sumedho. And yesterday uh, we got a little, little ways into one of his uh, talks on mindfulness of breathing, so I'll just maybe finish that. Uh, here and see if we have any time left over after that. Okay, so continuing on with the discussion of um, cultivating mindfulness of breathing using examples like uh, playing the guitar and um, learning various yoga postures. We have to learn to walk by falling down. Look at babies. I've never seen one who could walk straight away. Babies learn to walk by crawling, holding on to things falling down and then pulling themselves up again. It is the same with meditation. We learn wisdom by observing ignorance, by making a mistake, reflecting and keeping going. If we think about it too much, it seems hopeless. If babies thought a lot, they'd never learn to walk. When you watch a child first trying to walk, it seems hopeless. When we think about it, meditation can seem completely hopeless too, but we just keep doing it. It's easy when we're full of enthusiasm, really inspired with the teacher and the teaching, but enthusiasm and inspiration are impermanent conditions. They take us to disillusionment and boredom. We really have to put effort into the practice when we're bored. We want to turn away and be reborn into something fascinating and exciting, but for insight and wisdom, we have to endure patiently through the troughs of disillusionment and depression. It's only in this way that we can stop reinforcing the cycles of habit and come to understand cessation, to know the silence and emptiness of the mind. If we read books about not putting any effort into things, just letting everything happen in a natural, spontaneous way, we tend to start thinking that all we have to do is lounge about, and then we lapse into a dull, passive state. In my own practice, when I lapsed into dull states, I came to see the importance of putting effort into physical posture. I saw that there was no point in making effort in a merely passive way. I would pull the body up straight, push out the chest, and put energy into the sitting posture, 
or else I would do headstands or shoulder stands. Even though in the early days I didn't have a tremendous amount of energy, I still managed to do something requiring effort. I would learn to sustain it for a few seconds and then I would lose it again, but that was better than doing nothing at all. The more we take the easy way, the path of least resistance, and just follow our desires, the more the mind becomes sloppy, heedless, and confused. It is easier to sit and think all the time than not to think. It is a habit we've acquired. Even the thought, I shouldn't think, is just another thought. To avoid thought, we have to be mindful of avoiding it, to put forth effort by watching and listening, by being attentive to the flow in our minds. Rather than thinking about our mind, we watch it. Rather than just getting caught in thoughts, we keep recognizing them. Thought is movement, energy. It comes and goes. It is not a permanent condition of the mind. When we simply recognize thought as thought without evaluating or analyzing it, it slows down and stops. This isn't annihilation. This is allowing things to cease. It's compassion. As the habitual, obsessive thinking begins to fade, great spaces we never knew were there begin to appear. We are slowing everything down by absorbing into the natural breath, calming the karmic formations, and this is what we mean by samatha or tranquility, coming to a point of calm. The mind becomes malleable, supple and flexible, and the breathing can become very fine but we only carry the samatha practice to the point of upachara samadhi, access concentration. We don't try to absorb completely into the object and enter jhana. At this point, we are still aware of both the object and its periphery. The extreme kinds of mental agitation have diminished considerably, but we can still operate using wisdom. With our wisdom faculty still functioning, we investigate, and this is vipassana, looking into and seeing the nature of whatever we experience, its impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and impersonality. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta are not concepts we believe in, but things we can observe. We investigate the beginning of an inhalation and its ending. We observe what a beginning is, not thinking about what it is, but observing, aware with bare attention at the beginning of an inhalation and its end. The body breathes all on its own. The in-breath conditions the out-breath, and the out-breath conditions the in-breath. We can't control anything. Breathing belongs to nature. It doesn't belong to us. It is not self. When we see this, we are doing vipassana. The sort of knowledge we gain from Buddhist meditation is humbling. Ajahn Chah called it earthworm knowledge. It doesn't make you arrogant. It doesn't puff you up. It doesn't make you feel that you are anything or have attained anything. In worldly terms, this practice doesn't seem very important or necessary. Nobody is ever going to read a newspaper headline, at eight o'clock this evening, Venerable Semedo had an inhalation. To some people, thinking about how to solve all the world's problems might seem very important. How to help all the people in developing countries, how to set the world right. Compared with these things, watching our breath seems insignificant, and most people think, why waste time doing that? People have confronted me about this, saying, what are you monks doing sitting there? What are you doing to help humanity? You're just selfish. You expect people to give you food while you just sit there and watch your breath. You're running away from the real world. But what is the real world? Who is really running away and from what? What is there to face? 
we find that what people call the real world is the world they believe in, the world they are committed to, or the world they know and with which they are familiar. But that world is a condition of mind. Meditation is actually confronting the real world, recognizing and acknowledging it as it really is, rather than believing in it, justifying it, or trying mentally to annihilate it. Now the real world operates on the same pattern of arising and passing as the breath. We don't theorize about the nature of things, taking philosophical ideas from others and trying to rationalize with them. But by watching our breath, we actually observe the way nature is. When we watch our breath, we're actually watching nature. Through understanding the nature of the breath, we can understand the nature of all conditioned phenomena. If we tried to understand all conditioned phenomena in their infinite variety, quality, different time span, and so on, it would be too complex. Our minds wouldn't be able to handle it. We have to learn from simplicity. So with a tranquil mind, we become aware of the cyclical pattern. We see that all that arises passes away. That cycle is what is called samsara, the wheel of birth and death. We observe the samsaric cycle of the breath. We inhale and then we exhale. We can't have only inhalations or only exhalations. The one conditions the other. It would be absurd to think, I only want to inhale, I don't want to exhale. I'm giving up exhalation. My life will be just one constant inhalation. If I said that to you, you'd think I was crazy, but that is what most people do. How foolish people are when they want only to attach to excitement, pleasure, youth, beauty, and vigor. I only want beautiful things, and I'm not going to have anything to do with the ugly. I want pleasure and delight and creativity, but I don't want any boredom or depression. That is the same kind of madness as if you were to hear me saying, I can't stand inhalations, I'm not going to have them anymore. When we observe that attachment to beauty, sensual pleasures and love will always lead to despair, our attitude becomes one of detachment. That doesn't mean annihilation or any desire to destroy, but simply letting go, non-attachment. We don't seek perfection in any part of the cycle. We see that perfection lies in the cycle as a whole, including old age, sickness, and death. What arises in the uncreated reaches its peak and then returns to the uncreated, and that is perfection. As we start to see that all sankharas have this pattern of arising and passing away, we begin to go inwards to the unconditioned, the peace of the mind, its silence. We begin to experience sunyata, or emptiness, which is not oblivion or nothingness, but a clear and vibrant stillness. We can turn to the emptiness rather than to the conditions of the breath and mind. Then we have a perspective on the sankharas and don't just react blindly to them anymore. There is the conditioned, the unconditioned, and the knowing. What is the knowing? Is it memory? Is it consciousness? Is it me? I've never been able to find out, but I can be aware. In Buddhist meditation, we stay with the knowing, being aware, being awake, being Buddha in the present, knowing that whatever arises passes away and is not self. We apply this knowing to everything, both the conditioned and the unconditioned. It is transcendent, being awake rather than trying to escape, and it is all in our ordinary activity. We have the four normal postures of sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. 
we don't have to stand on our heads or do backflips. We use the four normal postures and ordinary breathing because we are moving towards that which is most ordinary, the unconditioned. Conditions are extraordinary, but peace of mind, the unconditioned, is so ordinary that nobody ever notices it. It is there all the time, but we don't ever notice it because we're attached to the mysterious and the fascinating. We get caught up in the things that arise and pass away, the things that stimulate and depress. We get caught up in the way things seem to be and forget. But in meditation we go back to the source, to peace, to that position of knowing. Then the world is understood for what it is, and we are no longer deluded by it. The realization of samsara is the condition for nibbana. As we recognize the cycles of habit and are no longer deluded by them or their qualities, we realize nibbana. The Buddha knowing is of just two things, the conditioned and the unconditioned. It is an immediate recognition of how things are right now, without grasping or attachment. At this moment, we can be aware of the conditions of the mind, of feelings in the body, of what we're seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking, and also of the emptiness of the mind. The conditioned and the unconditioned are what we can realize. So the Buddha's teaching is a very direct teaching. Our practice is not to become enlightened, but to be in the knowing now. Okay. So are there any uh, comments or questions people have on this reading? All right, so we're just about out of time, so we can finish uh, for this evening. Thank you.